Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Chris Salagi, thank you. Would you please introduce your colleagues starting right here on our right? Over here on the yellow guitar, we've got Steve Allen. Steve Allen. Watched him all my life. That's another Steve. One of my favorite TV performers. The gentleman on drums, please. Joel Terese from Rhode Island. Joel, nice to have you with us. Tall guy over here. The big guy in the bass, Ron Flint. Hello, Ron. Nice to have you. Where are you from? Tulsa. How many guys are from Tulsa in this group? Steve and I. Just the two of you. Where'd you two come from? Well, I came from New Jersey, Brooklyn. Joel? Same. Rhode Island. I forgot. See, notice the tremendous retention. In three seconds, I forgot Rhode Island. I didn't mean to do that. Um, why is it that L.A. worked for you guys? Well, this is where all the record companies live, you see? All the people that... Like You're gonna, now you'll anger everybody in Nashville, Chicago, and New York. It, there are other places, but do you have to be, if you want to get a break in this business, do you have to be where the action is? Seems like in pop music, yeah, you should be where the action is. There's a lot of clubs to play here now, too, you see. So there's a lot of places for them to see you. You, at one time, I read somewhere, were a, what was a stage manager at the Roxy, which is a very famous club here. Did you do that out of desperation or desire? Well, I was hungry, you know, and I couldn't <laughs> find any other jobs. And did you learn anything? Well, yeah, I got to see a lot of really great performers, and I did learn a lot from you know, watching them. Let me, let me skip over to, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. What musical roots does one get in Tulsa? What do you listen to when you're growing up there that causes you to do this in the end? Um, American Bandstand. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, that's the magic word. No, I wasn't seeking that out. No, but it's, it's only true though, that and, and AM radio, when we were growing up, had great important music on it and that's where we came from. Do you have a characterization for this music? Does it, does it have a name? It sounds familiar to me. I mean, it's electric, it moves. It, it, it's kind of new music, new pop, yeah. new something. Uh, it, but Rock no, and roll. yeah, they're, they're calling it new wave and other things, but I, I don't know, it's, it's just good stuff. It's Do you write it all? Yeah, well, we all write the music. It's kind of third generation rock. Yeah, I think, I that, hey, that's the best line yet. May I have that one? We'll yeah, have that cast can, in bronze. What's the next one called? We like to call this one Yellow Pills. All right, ladies and gentlemen, 2020. One, two, three, four.
I wonder if you could tell the story of writing Yellow Pills and how that how that song happened. I know that we we were signed, and there was a period of three, or, you know, like I said, three or four months where we were able to write new songs for the record. I just remember being in my little apartment because I still have the cassette of me writing it somewhere. I, I know I've found it before. It just seemed to come out effortlessly, is all I know. I mean, lyrically, it took a little while longer. And actually, just <laughs> to show how strange songs can be, when I when I was first writing it, in the chorus, I was singing My Yellow Dreams. Mm-hmm. And it became Yellow Pills after that. So I know that that's what I have there. But as soon as I got together with the band and we went over it because we would get together, remember we were at Chris's house. It just had a rhythm that worked. And we were all kind of surprised. Like it's like the feast the pieces kind of fit together in a way. I'd never written anything like that. And you know, dun 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 you know, just had uh, the rhythm just kind of worked and was different. And then the release of the chorus and in the end, so that's what I remember. It probably did it turn into something quite different once you were in the studio with Earl. It seems like he, you probably added a lot of layers to it that weren't there before, but I might be wrong. No, you're right. You are right. In fact, I remember saying, and and I think it was a musician. Was it, it used to be Musician Magazine? I don't know if you've seen that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Every once in a while, we'd finish a mix, and I, mean, I think the writer was there. But playing it in Sound City on the giant speakers, which I really miss studios that had those kind of giant stereo speakers, like A3s or something, Altex, or whatever they had, it sounded so huge the way Earl had done the production that I remember I said to the guy, it sounds like German Expressionism. and i you know because that'll have really heavy lines you know and it seemed to have that kind of sound to me so yeah i i still can play it and go wow this thing sounds great so earl had a lot to do with that yeah yellow pills on the record is so thick and so there's so many little like kind of tweaks it seems like going on and um the vocal like the hooks in the song are really accentuated well you know the whole the way the way the whole thing is put together that song i think especially is the best produced song on the album you know like it's it really is brought to life in a in a impressive kind of way i see what you mean i and i would agree when i you know, it's kind of like if you're it's your own work, you have to be in just the right mood to kind of play it, you know? And if I'm in just the right mood and I play it loud enough, I'm transported back to when we made it and what you're talking about. Because he even put, like, I think in the third verse, I think Ron and Chris are going, ah, 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 ah. And then that kind of, Earl put an echo and made it, the delay changes. And then he goes, ah, ah, so there's all these little things like that, 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 um, you know, it was just really a combination of everybody doing the best they could, you know, we were all trying to make the best product we could and 
maybe the the expanse of the rhythm of that song gave Earl and us a little more to work with. Yeah, exactly. And Chris's part, God, Chris came up with the great because I have a demo version of it where he was playing a more consistent part, and then he opened it up and let it have more space. And as we gradually learned to play the song, and uh, so everybody kind of came together, but. Yeah, there was a lot of time, I guess, spent on that. Right. Yeah. baseball um we were on the we were both new to the to the neighborhood and we uh, got put on uh, on the same baseball team um just the summer before fifth grade and uh, that summer we got, we kind of got together and, and played some guitars and uh, and you know kind of started playing pretty seriously together pretty uh, well maybe not seriously is the way to put it but uh, frequently uh, right, right in there, and then all through uh, middle school and high school, we played together. And then we both went to uh, Oklahoma State uh, at the same time, Oklahoma State University at the same time, and uh, and played together all through there. Uh, Steve moved to uh, Hollywood the year before I graduated, and then um, as soon as I, g- I got out of music school, I I moved to uh, to California as well. Uh, at Oklahoma State, we were in a, a band. It was really Steve's band, a band called Sweet Virginia, that was very, very popular. And, and we played these uh, two thousand seater uh, saloons. They were all over Oklahoma, but that only sold beer, uh, very bad beer. So when you end up in LA, was that seventy seven? When you got there, seventy six mm-hmm. maybe. Seventy, I think seventy eight is when I. Got oh, seventy eight. Okay. Yeah, a lot of the, these connections are like go way back. Like we're both we're all Dwight Tooley and Phil went to another high school. I just can't think of the name for a second. And we were at Nathan Hale High School, and so we were at, we didn't know them at all. So when when the Dwight Tooley band came out, and I don't know what year I'm on fire was maybe seventy five. Yeah, it sounds right. But but I first anyway when I first heard it uh and my my girlfriend at the time lolly whitmore had gone to school with phil and dwight Dwight was a couple years older i think and she went wait a minute i know these guys i'm like you do i couldn't believe it you know and it was on shelter records and so i got to meet phil kind of through however i just kind of got to know him and in tulsa a little bit and then when i I moved out to LA myself for a little while at the beginning, at the end of 76, everyone else was still finishing college like Ron was. So anyway, and a, and a bunch of friends, but Phil had, they had gone out to Oklahoma. Like, I mean, uh, California, like kind of all Okies end up doing from grapes of wrath to Leon Russell. Anyway. So Phil 
uh, I, he had been out there and then I, I got to know him a little bit and then I came back to town and I was gonna, I had these, I had given it all and under the freeway and, and another song. So he came to play drums even back then at the eight track studio. And he was so great. And, um, and Rob played bass and a keyboard player, Mike Riquette, I had worked with played keyboards. And, and so we made the, that, those tracks of under the, the, the Bob single. So that was Phil on it way back then. And then, like I said, I, we finished it. I got to finish it in at United Western studio in Hollywood before there was a 2020. So what was so what was the music scene like? Was that when punk was taking over when you got there? Well, it would depend on on one's perspective, if you will. There was uh, the Van Halen scene, um, the hair metal scene that was that was really just getting started. Then there were all these other pop kind of acts, uh, acts similar to us. Um, I think you would you could uh, include the Plimsolls and the Motels. Uh, Gary Valentine and the No, Code Blue, uh, a lot of those kind of those kind of acts, and we all played the same places, kind of a rotating sort of scene around Southern California. Yeah, by the time you were there, the nerves had already come and gone, right? And so, right, and Peter already had the Plimsolls. Well, uh, Pete hadn't started the Plimsolls yet. Um, we, in fact. We, we had run into Pete and, and had asked him to join 2020. Uh, we had a rehearsal at this place uh, called the Wilshire Fine Arts Center, this rat-infested uh, rehearsal hall uh, in East L.A. And Pete said, yeah, it's because the rehearsal went really well. And, and uh, at the time, we were a trio. And then, then the next morning, Pete kind of came to his senses and, and decided that he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to share songwriting with an act the way that, that 2020 would have been. Right. And also at that time, were the punk bands like the Weirdos and the Dickies and all of that stuff was happening too? Yeah, I saw them many, many times. Um, I had a, a, I have a very good friend uh, named uh, Pat Garrett who went by the nom de guerre uh, Rand McNally, and he had a label called Danger House Records that was one of the first uh labels to record i think he recorded the weirdos i'm pretty sure he recorded x he recorded a, an act called black randy and the metro squad right black randy was the first uh first time i ever saw belinda uh from the go-go's mm -hmm. she she was a background singer for the the metro squad wow so that's and just guys, i'm sorry 
Well, that's just unbelievable how much music was happening at that time. If you think of all the different scenes, you had the scene that Van Halen came out of, and you had the heavy metal thing starting, and you had the punk scene, and you had the whole power pop scene. I mean, there was so much happening all at the same time and all such amazing music. And I've, I've never seen anything like it since. I've, I've often wondered... Uh, if it was somewhat like London in the 60s, um, you know, say 65 to, to 68, where they had this explosion of, of music and, and, and people who were actively part of the scene who were, were always there, were always participating in, in trying to, you know, to, to, to move the artistry forward. I've often wondered if it was similar to that. It was a very, very lucky time yeah. to to try to get started in the music business. It yeah, was, uh, yeah. It was very, very fortunate. And Greg Shaw is basically the person who started calling it Power Pop, right? He was one of them, him and uh, Gary Spraza. And so did it feel like at the time when, when it was all happening, did it feel like there was this movement that you were a part of that became it, this thing called Power Pop? It did feel like that to uh, a large degree. I'm sure it was due in part to uh, so many of the of the sim of like you go play a gig and on the bill would be um, the plimsolls and the zeros and you just for me I would love their music and I I would think it would be great if they thought about us the way I think about them you know what I mean where it's um, a little bit of a community and we're all in it together. Uh, kind of deal, even though there was a lot of competition, and there was, I mean, especially between us and, and the Knack, and I think with several other acts, everybody wanted to, you know, to, to do well, to sell a lot of tickets, and, um, but I, I, I definitely felt like there were a group of bands that, that were all in it together. I mean, you must have been one of the catalysts for him to to start realizing that that this this thing was happening, right? I, you know, I don't know if we were uh, sure. I'm, I imagine we were. Yes, I imagine we were. I do remember that issue too. Yeah, we were at that point. We were excited to have any kind of leg up, you know, yeah. so to get some to be in his magazine. But I remember looking at that cover. That's where the guy has like a, a jacket on, <laughs> roots of power pop or. It's yeah. power pop issue, right? Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, well, this is this is we're not punks, you know. So it's kind of like, all right, call it that. But we never thought of it as that we were just that or something. We didn't know it was going to become a thing. Right, but so um, you didn't that, that you that never word. thought of yourselves as a punk band. That's one thing I I'm curious about too is what the relation was between punk and power pop you know well before it was i mean like okay that that article did mention power pop but we it wasn't really a thing but punk definitely was a thing and like uh so we we were inspired as everyone was by the whole punk energy because we were coming out of the 70s and you know, it had gotten a bit bloated with Led Zeppelin and, and everything, even though they're awesome. And then when the Sex Pistols and well, when the Ramones came out, I remember being in Oklahoma and someone put that on really loud and we sat there and listened to the whole thing. We were like, 
oh my god right this is phenomenal yeah and two minute songs that that really kind of i think sparked england sparked us but we didn't we were ron and i'd already played so long we weren't going to be just that like you know it's like we had so many other influences that we were not gonna but we loved that energy absolutely and then when we got to la that's when it really started to take off you know with rodney on KROQ playing all the new stuff and coming from england and and the Ramones and Blondie. And so all of a sudden this thing just started to happen, you know? Yeah, punk kind of branched out into this whole new wave. This the blanket, the new wave became like a blanket term for this whole variety of different things. And a lot of it was people that kind of came out of punk. But, and a lot of the punk bands just veered towards the power pop sound too. Um, like Stiv Bader's, you know, puts out a record with Bomp, or like if you listen to the Stiff Little Fingers as they gradually develop, you know, from a punk band to a power pop band. But I have the Giving It All single, and, you know, if you look at that, and even if you listen to the song, at the time, I could see how it could have been called a punk single, you know. Yeah, that's cool, because it was made before that, any of that happened. Right. So it was, but it has a certain energy. A lot of it was though, when I, when I'm thinking about this now with you, a lot of it is because of when those, those bands were born and all the influences they had of the sixties. And then everything kind of, you know, album tracks became more like 10 minutes and which was great. I loved it, but it kind of spread out and we almost had, I think we all had that same feeling of let's compress it back into tighter music with songs. But there was so much uh, energy happening then. There were people, friends of mine that went, okay, I'm going to be punk. Like one of my friends from Oklahoma who formed Danger House label, Danger House Records, Mm -hmm. which had X and a lot of bands. But he just was like, went totally into punk fashion totally into the punk sound and we already couldn't do that because we already knew how to play you know like we <laughs> right. just couldn't limit it we came in and we wanted and plus our influences were so much beatles and rolling stones and we didn't want to you know what i mean so everybody had their own at least there were places to be heard because if you if you i know you weren't around them but there was a, not a lot of options going on uh, in 75, four, you know, so, and even 76, then by the time 76 and 77, there was like, Oh, I could jump in this. I feel more comfortable over here than over here. But also I just want to do my thing. So you take a basic musician that grew up on all kinds of influences. You ultimately kind of have to hone it in somewhere. Did you know Greg Shaw very well? I met him several times and I, I knew him more as not like someone I would just casually know, but he was always the head of Bop Records. Yeah. So like when I would have a meeting with him, um, because I had the track, the single Ron Flint played on, on Under the Freeway and Given It All, our first single. But it basically was my solo project that I started in Tulsa 
and on eight track and brought it to California with a friend at a great studio and we transferred it to 16. So anyway, I finished it. It was kind of my Steve Allen solo thing and Greg heard it and wanted to put it out as a single by the time we were ready to put it out. 2020 had started to exist uh, with Mike Gallo and, and Ron Flint and I. So okay. we made it 2020's first single. So that's kind of how that happened. And, but it totally was, you know, was what we needed at the time, you know? Yeah. So yeah. So, and then he decided to put up some money and we went in an eight track and recorded things like, uh, going up with my girl and screaming and kind of that period where we were working out our new stuff as a band. And so he, we didn't have any funds. We were so broke and he put up the money so we could do that. And then he could put out those songs. And then right when we were pretty soon before we were actually signed, when everything just kind of exploded, he really wanted us to put out an album with Bob. And, but we just knew we wanted to hang on to what we had and let it grow a little more and see if we could um, maybe, you know, just in our gut instinct was we think we can get a major label. And, and I think Greg was kind of really wished we would have put out a record with him, an album. But right. I'm really glad we waited so we could put out the album that is 2020's first album. And it kind of needed all that great studio and all the things we did to to be known internationally, too, you know. So, but Greg was always, he, man, he was so consistent. It, it was just so cool to see a guy with a Brian Jones haircut that had his own label and magazine. And we were just very impressed by him. Right. Did did Greg play? Did he play music? Play his own music, or was he just a a fan? And a... I have I have no idea. Yeah, I don't play, think, but I, don't I know think I never did, saw him but... play. Yeah, but he was one of those. There's there's people, and you're you're one of them. I'm suspecting that just music is what he needed to live on and think about. And right. people like him. I remember listening to. I was at a party. Um, at the Screamers' house, they were a punk band right. in um, yeah. Hollywood for a minute, and it was it was I think Jake Riviera uh, from I guess Stiff Records mm -hmm. and Greg Shaw were in the kitchen talking about records, and man, they knew stuff way beyond you know my time period and details, and it was just blowing my mind. So there's always people that. I've got friends here in Nashville like that that just know almost every record ever made, you know, because they, they, and they have an encyclopedia in their head. <laughs> so he, he was one of those guys. Now that's a story. See, I love the, the image of Greg Shaw and Jake Riviera in a kitchen at a party talking about obscure records is just classic <laughs> i love it dude it, it, it was intense like yeah. they were walked in and i just remember and then at some point i broke in and said hey greg when is our single coming out <laughs> that's what i wanted to ask you <laughs> and then uh, they went great. he kind of answered something and they went right back to locking their mind and it was truly like a vulcan mind meld or yeah. something yeah. yeah there were a lot of great moments like that with people like kim fowley and phil Spector. but i look back now and i'm like damn that was some rare 
stuff. And I knew at the time it was, too. Yeah. So you had a run-in with Phil Spector? Oh, man, we, we you know, I, I want to write about that at some point. But uh, Phil, when we, when we were starting to catch on a little, we played the Troubadour, which we were, you know, so happy to play there. Um, and we opened for the Knack, right. which, you know, was, were not signed yet. But they had clout, and they were bringing, like, Ray Manzanaric set in on keyboards. So anyway, I guess Phil, I mean, Phil Spector was invited to see him, and he ended up in our dressing room. And it felt like that's when everything just started to take off. Um, so he invited us to, he had his, his Diane or some lady would call and go, Phil, I want you to come over tonight or something. So on, I think we played on Saturday. So on Sunday night, we came, we went to Phil's mansion in Hollywood. And that was the first of like seven or eight visits that were just like, we were in rock and roll heaven. It was kind of amazing. I mean, it was just, he was just, he wanted to talk rock and roll and we could ask him, I could ask him anything about working with the Beatles or working with the, you know, early 60s stuff. And he let me record them on a cassette player. So I still have those. Um, oh, wow. That information. Yeah. Those interviews. Not interviews, but. Yeah. And um, he was, a, he could be a total gentleman, you know, and he could be a little bit Phil Spector. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to say too much there. Right. I talked to Jonathan Paley and he, uh, they recorded the Paley brothers recorded with Phil. And yeah, he said that Phil was the nicest guy in the world until alcohol came into the picture. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. That was exactly right. And, uh, but he was a great host. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one little thing like the, when we were the first time we were there, he had this huge sunken living room with a grand piano. I mean, it was huge. And, you know, we're living in little tiny apartments and, his ceiling was like from, you know, Italy or something. This was like his primo mansion place that he had. And and we could play his grand piano. He would disappear a lot. But he he had his, his bodyguard would bring us beers and he had like a this is this is what killed me. He had an open container thing with cigarettes in it. And we were all smoking then, so so it was like, Hey, he even has cigarettes for us. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he would come in all dressed up and uh, not any outrageous wigs, but just, you know, he was Phil Spector with glasses. And he was just so smart and so fun to talk to. Those were the best times, you know. Mm -hmm. But he was interested in producing several bands. And so we were one of them. And he had a song he wanted us to do called Baby Let's Stick Together. And so That's we would the play song and that sing the Paley brothers did, I think. So they ended up doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the and so I think he ended up doing them and the Ramones Rock and Roll High School mm -hmm. and maybe a maybe a couple other maybe that was it for new wave type bands. But we so we never really seriously thought he was the right guy, but we just loved meeting with him and I think Ron said recently that it seemed like he was kind of lonely and really wanted to talk to mm -hmm. people that were, you know, musicians. Right. Did you have multiple record labels interested in you? Like, was there kind of a competition between labels to sign you? 
Yes. Yeah. Luckily, we did have that going on. And uh, here's one little. This is just shows you how crazy it was to us, and it still is, I think. But we were, we just got we. There was a buzz, and there was, you know, it's kind of like um, the industry knew that there could be money here. You know, then there was definitely, you know, a lot of bands were starting to happen in the new wave. Then from the Police to Blondie to you know, all kind of things, talking heads. Right. It was right before it all broke with this. So in LA, the bands there that kind of could, they were on a certain level were being courted and, and labels were interested in them. So we were talking with Portrait Records because they were part of CBS at the time, soon to be Sony. And they, um, it was like Hart's label. So it's kind of like a, a private label but we would get more attention. We thought, yeah, be part of the big machine. So they were really interested. What we didn't know was that even Clive Davis was interested. So we had a party at our house, our little apartment on Hobart in Hollywood. And Clive Davis called Ron's our number. And Ron took the call. And, and Clive Davis was saying, you don't want to sign with them because that president's going to leave or something in which we didn't know anything about. So we even had things like that going on. Clive Davis called our, you know, apartment. Right. So it was pretty heady stuff. And we really were trying to make these big decisions. And, you know, it's it's classic case of, you know, kids that know really don't know anything but are so happy to have anything going on that you have to make choices, you know, with managers and labels and stuff that you want to have happen, but it comes at you so hard and heavy that you're trying to make the right decisions, you know, and whether we did or not, I, I don't know, but we did the best we could, but that, I thought that was pretty far out. We played a showcase for uh, Clive Davis. We were just days away from, from signing with CBS and uh, he got a hold of uh, someone that was working with us and, 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 um, they told him, well, well, no, we're, we're going to, we're going to sign with CBS. And Clive says, well, if I hear you and like you, you won't be signing with CBS. You'll be signing with me because I'll give you a much, much better deal. So he came and heard us, and then he left, and he said, why would I want them? I've already got Dwight Twilley. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you knew Dwight and Phil back in, in Tulsa, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, knew, I knew Phil quite a bit better than I did Dwight. I know, you know obviously, Phil has passed, but now, now Dwight and I are pretty pretty tight friends we're playing a show together here in a couple weeks oh really yeah i'm su such a big fan of both of them but uh really really big fan of phil seymour his first his self-titled album such a great record that's yeah, a good record yeah i love that it album is. yeah if, if he was still around i definitely would have already asked him to be on the show that's for sure <laughs> he was <laughs> he was great and he was in 2020 at one point wasn't he well yeah <laughs> i wanted to yeah. ask you about that because it seems like uh that was late in the band, right? When he might have. No, we he he was always wanting his his own his own deal. Yeah. We played we played together a lot. We did a lot of a lot of shows together, and uh, I don't know that it's any big secret anymore. But he played uh, some drums on our first record, and and I played I don't know maybe on two or three tracks of 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 his record um, of his first record. When 2020 was cutting our first album, 
um, we reached a point with Mike where he didn't have the experience to play on that kind of microscopic big studio level, which was understandable, though he did play on Tell Me Why. So Phil came in and kind of imitated or learned all of Mike's parts and then executed them. And we got the basics down in like two or three days. Okay. So that so Phil is actually playing on the record, except for "Tell Me Why." Wow. So he was just man. He was just one of the most talented people I had ever met. And so then when he went with Richie Podler, you know, Ron and I came over and played on a couple of those things. Um, what, what are the ones? What's the uh, the cover one? Let her dance. Right. Yeah. And then another one, I think. Um, but but yeah, he and he turned us on to Richie Podler. But now Phil was just such a great, he was such a talented guy. Listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Yeah, it, uh, a lot of it must just be a matter of luck of if you hire the right manager, sign with the right label. You don't really know how it's going to pan out until it happens, right? I think you're right. And we def- definitely signed with the wrong management and they ended up suing us. And so we ended up in Century City for a while, like that Tom Petty song. And that kind of zapped some energy out of us. So there's things like that that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, there's a, probably very few acts that haven't had that happen. No. But I wish we could have had a Brian, a Brian Epstein type person that we could put our faith in that had our back, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up with our next management, some people, image image management, with um, Shelly Heber and Leanne Myers, and they were really good to us. So we did end up with that. But, yeah, it was crazy stuff, man. Obviously, you guys were signed before the Knack hit, because it seems like after the Knack had the big hit, it seems like a lot more bands got signed. But obviously, you guys, you know, you were signed probably around the same time the Knack were signed, maybe. I think what happened was the Knack were signed and Mike Chapman had probably made the record. And, but we were signed right at the same time. So the Knack hadn't come out yet. Yeah. And, but I know, I know another story I'm pretty sure is true is so our drummer, Mike Gallo came up with the name 2020 and Ron and I were a little unsure about it, but it just seemed to move forward. And, we we played, we had our name, I think, at the Marquee at the Starwood, which was one of the other big clubs, like the Whiskey, Troubadour, and Starwood. And I think the story I heard is Doug Figer was going to call his band 2020. Then they saw us on the Marquee, and when they went, oh, shit, we got to get a new name. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so they came up with the Knack, because uh, I heard them say this much later. But so by the time we were um, recording our first album, it was a uh, early summer of 79 with Earl Mankey at sound city, the renowned studio yeah. um, in the Valley, the Tom Petty worked out and so many other people, Fleetwood Mac and on and on. We were working on the album then. And uh, I remember in my car, uh, we went out and put the radio on and they were playing my Sharona for the first time. We'd never heard it. And we were like, wow, you know, this is a great record. The drums are amazing. And it was so tight. And I mean, they made a great record. It was a huge hit. So that all of a sudden catapulted up to number one. And we were still making our album, is what I remember. Capitol Records um, put up such a promo thing to uh, support the Knack that it was on buses. So they had that cover shot of them, the four faces which is a great photo, uh, but it was on buses and they all <laughs> yeah. said, get the next. So the amount of billboard and buses and everything just seemed a little too much hype. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them that they had the success they had, you know? Yeah. So I'm really interested in Earl Mankey because I love, um, it seems like every record he produced sounds they sound different from each other, but they all sound different from everything else too. It's like, you know, he did the Paley brothers and he did the pop. I talked to Dave Swanson from the pop and I love the record he did with the three o'clock. And then of course your record. So I wonder how much, how much did Earl have to do with how your record ended up sounding? 
I think he had uh, quite a bit in that basically with you had, we had just added Chris Solagi to the band and we'd been, uh, so maybe he'd been in the band, I don't know, three or four months or something. So we'd integrated from being a sharp three piece band, uh, Ron on bass, me on guitar, Mike Gallo on drums. And then Chris entered in as second guitar and keyboards. And once we got our record deal, he got a Prophet 5 synthesizer. So he was really good at figuring things out. And so that added another dimension to our sound. Yeah. Um, but, but we were basically a very tight. So if it wasn't made with Earl, it would have been a different sounding record. It would, probably would have been, who knows, but cleaner or just a little more like the Beats record, maybe. Because they had kind of a very stripped down record or even the Nax record. Um, but with Earl, he was into sonic, what, what's the word, like textures and things that were way beyond us. But what he did on that record, like the drums have a certain kind of doubled effect. And there's lots of, I mean, I'm just saying sonically Earl put a stamp on it that I, that I love, that we, we love. We just trusted him, but here's an example. Like, tell me why. I had a cassette of our demo of it. And you know how cassettes can whoosh? I don't know what happens to them. If something happens to them, mm -hmm. it's like the sound kind of whooshes in and out. Mm -hmm. And he liked that. So that's <laughs> where he put all that, woo, woo, you know, whooshy quality. He was imitating the cassette. Do you know, I'm the guy that sent you a message about Angel ripping off Tell Me Why. Do you, yes. do you remember that? <laughs> I, yes. Oh, in fact, I found that on my Facebook Messenger. But um, I think I had just heard about it like from a couple people 
right around the same time. Right. And or maybe yours was the first. I don't remember, but it was just so undeniably that that uh, yeah. <laughs> you almost just have to laugh. I know it was so weird. And, <laughs> I mean, when I heard it, I was just like, "What is going on here? This is the 2020 song." <laughs> I mean, it was so obvious. They they took that whole bridge part and everything. It was crazy. Totally took the lyrics yeah. and everything. Yeah. And uh, the title. Yeah, I know. They it's just really yeah. weird. Like they thought nobody would notice. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was so weird. I guess at this point, I don't know if they cared. It's like, well, shit, it's a good. Yeah. One of our better songs, maybe. I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, that'll that'll still kind of unresolved, but I don't know if it's worth the effort. To right. be honest, at this point, no, I can't imagine how I don't know how many copies they sold <laughs> or anything like that. What a weird! But thing it is to rather do, <laughs> so audacious of them yeah. to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very. Strange. I do remember, but thanks for hitting us to that. consumed with music and and he's a terrific engineer he was the right guy for us steve and i had done a lot of recording home recording you know like on four tracks and we we knew just enough to be dangerous about recording but earl really knew and he he was very uh, open and smart and uh, uh welcomed uh, ideas and was quick you know there wasn't a a big lag. I think we made our first record in in something like 18 days. From, yeah, I think three weeks I read. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that that was right. And, yeah. uh, and so he was he was the right guy for us, I thought. Our band, our little band 2020, we were all right. Steve and I had been playing together a long, long time at that point. But we were pretty rough. We had some goofy edges and some stupid stuff that, that Earl absolutely took care of so i'm very happy with that record his brain would just go to these places and he knew how to get the sounds and we totally just trusted him and let him run with it and then he knew how to make things bigger like the, the my main rhythm guitar on yellow pills i asked him about this later i said did is this what you do and he said yes so he had it on the left side and then he slightly delayed it really tight on the right side so it's kind of like this massive guitar part, you know, of chords. And so he did that. And then with the drum, he used, I remember he used some effect where he could physically play each hit. So each two and four hit on the snare is a little different than the one before it. And he was playing it with his hands. So he was doing all kinds of things that we had no idea what. 
um, he was doing, but he was creating his Earl Mankey magic for us. So, so you were yeah, happy. He, he you were happy with how it turned out. We were very happy, and it still holds up really well. Yeah. You know, if I were to have mixed it, knowing what I know now, I might have made it different, but it wouldn't have been any better necessarily. And uh, no, in fact, I wish we would have stuck with Earl, but because we had such a big, massive record deal, and it, the record was not big and massive. We went with another producer, but I wonder what if, how it would have gone down if we could have just stuck with with Earl, you know? Yeah. But yeah, that's, there's lots of wondering about the past, you know. You can't help but right, right, do that. You know? I wanted to ask you, maybe my favorite song on the first 2020 album is, is a song called Leaving Your World Behind, which of course you wrote. I did. I, that's such an amazing song with just a great melody. And of course, I mean, the production is amazing on it, but do you think of that song as a ballad or it's kind of in between? I, I guess you could think of it as a, as a mid-tempo number. It's It wasn't the slowest song on that record, but... Um... It had some uh, interesting effects. It had the the Prophet Five, which is a brand new synthesizer at the time. This thing called a vocoder, which uh, people use all the time now, but at the time it, it hadn't even officially been commercially released, where you could uh, sing into a microphone that was fed into your synthesizer, and then you could play melodies based on the input of the, of the, the vocal. There was a lot of heavy stuff going on with us at the time. We were being sued by this uh, management company that we had fired, and that's what the song was about, you know. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, just uh, one of one of those tunes.
uh, we were always writing. So we may not have had the songs that were tested as much in front of audiences as we had the first record, because we'd been playing those songs in front of uh, big audiences for a year or so before we tracked it. I like the second record. There are songs on the second record that I think are as good as any that, that I'd written. Uh, I like uh, Nuclear Boy quite a bit and uh, Strange Side of Love and Girl Like You. And then I like I like Steve's songs too. I, um, I, I, I think he had some just terrific guitar work uh, in there. Night I Heard a Scream I think is a, a particularly good good song. But then there's just there's some that I just think are, are horrible too. I, I hate American Dream. I, I want to put a gun to my head every time I hear that song. <laughs> yes. um, and and I have to I I wish I could remember where where I was getting that from. I'd always been a big Eno fan and had listened to a lot of a lot of his music and 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 I was a big David Bowie fan. So I think I can only blame them for that. Um, I, I Chris Morris wrote a review and called it a fuzzy attempt at uh, techno pop, and boy, was, <laughs> was that ever true? <laughs> yeah, but I, Nuclear Boy, yeah, Nuclear Boy got a got a ton of airplay, um, and it, it, all all over all over the country and really all over the world. So while it was a difficult time for us uh, because of the 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 label thing, it was it's a pretty creative time as well. Yeah, I like the second record a lot, especially the first side, I guess. And uh, like, but you know, like the song "Alien" is a really good song, but then it's also kind of weird. <laughs> Which... it's very, yeah, that, that's that's a song that is pegged in time, you know. <laughs> yeah. With, with the movie Alien, there's the song Alien. There's. Uh, so. But you already mentioned The Night I Heard a Scream, which that's my favorite song on the record. And I wanted to ask you about that because it's a real dichotomy because it's such an upbeat, poppy song. And yet the subject matter is just really dark. It is. And yeah. So I wanted to ask you about writing that one. So you and Steve wrote that one together or? Yeah, well, yeah, I think he, I think Steve had the the biggest part of it. I, I'm pretty sure I wrote the bridge and maybe the the uh, the pre-chorus part i think this was about a night that steve and uh exine Savinka and john doe were leaving either the whiskey or the roxy and exine's sister stepped out in front of a car and i think that i think that's where the song came from i figured it had to be based on a on a true story um yes yeah yeah, yeah the narrative is 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 essentially true so was her sister hurt when was she was hit by a car? I think she might have might have died. I think so. I tried to reach you, but I could not find the time. She goes down.
so then the lookout album was kind of it seems like it was kind of a stripped down record was that was that the idea or is that just how it turned out uh there was no idea in that sense but you know that's we we worked with Richie Podler who we were we found out about him from Phil Seymour's right from that album that first album and he had a totally kind of old school way of doing it that was very slow it's, it kind of slowed us down but we were also um trying to come up with the best material and we were still trying to write our second album right so we had a bit of the sophomore thing go on it was just a different kind of production and a lot of the sounds are not as, as strong as I, as I want, as I would have wanted. But at the time it, it was just what we did, you know, some of it holds up really well. I love nuclear boy. Yeah. Some people really like all the songs and or whatever. It's just, it, I, I think the first album had stands up better to me. I think you could tell that you just, you didn't have enough time to, to write a second album I, and it happened. I mean, that's why this sophomore slump is a thing, I think, because that's what happens. You, you're touring, you're doing whatever, and you don't have enough time, but the label wants you to go into the studio and make the next record. And you still haven't written all the songs. <laughs> and that is probably the situation you found yourselves in. Right. I think it's a bit of that. Absolutely. I remember writing life in the USA, which was life in the CIA um on on the road you know me and ron in a hotel somewhere i think we got stuck in rochester or something um because the van broke <laughs> you know that kind of stuff <laughs> but yeah you're totally right and uh it was just totally it's a different situation but then again some people really love that album so you just as an artist it's always hard to say after the fact what's going on you know this place called Madame Wong's, which was a, a place down in Chinatown that had sort of been cultivated by uh, three or four acts, uh, us, the Plimsolls, the Valentine, uh, Gary Valentine, and the motels, and it, and it had become a destination for people to go. You know, it was a, a very interesting place. And we played a show there, and a lot of people came out. Uh, it was very well attended. Brian Wilson was there, Tom Petty. Uh, just a bunch of, you know, celebrity types. Also, there was a writer there from uh, the Los Angeles Times. And it was one of our better shows. We hit it hit it pretty good. And then that Sunday, there was a big article about us with a big picture in the Sunday calendar section of the LA Times. We took that article, and by just coincidence, our drummer worked in the mailroom 
of this great big entertainment law firm. They had Streisand and Springsteen and Dylan. Um, and we just essentially went there and sat in the lobby with this little article. And they went and got a junior associate and he signed us up. And from there, we had some of the best legal representation that, that any act could have. And that's probably how we wound up at, at CBS because of those relationships. I said all that to say that he got us uh, an enormous record deal. Um, our personal advance was very large. Our recording budgets were large. Our tour support was big. So that's how you wind up owing half a million dollars. So you talked about uh, tour support. Did you guys do a lot of touring? We did. Yeah, we, and did you really, open for a lot of different bands? I'd love to hear about different bands you played with on the road. Well, let's see. Um, the first record, we pretty much were headlining, you know, medium-sized clubs, and then we would do some joint bills with uh, different acts, like the producers uh, in the shoes, or yeah. not the uh, shoes. In Southern California and West Coast, we still were playing with the Plimsolls and Motels and uh, those types. We we opened for the Ramones, I guess, for a month or so uh, on a West Coast uh, swing. For the second record, we did a lot of opening dates for Joe Jackson. And then we did some opening dates for uh, Hall and & Oates. And then a handful of dates uh, for Alice Cooper. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, some really horrible matches there. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard of uh, uh, opening act syndrome. Yeah. Where uh, the opening act will get a third of the lights and maybe half the PA. Right. <laughs> they really did that to us. They they were not uh, uh, a generous uh, lot. And Joe Jackson, personally, was... I'm not sure how, how rated, how... how, how X-rated fella can be on. on oh, your go for it! Go for it! <laughs> the fucking asshole! Just really, really, the biggest jerk that he, wow. that he could would say. And at the time, you know, we had we had something going on on the radio uh, with Nuclear Boys, so a lot of people were there. Just came to these shows to to see us play, and he'd just say shitty stuff because he was doing his jump and jive thing. You know, he he wasn't even playing his hits. At oh, all. he was touring jump and jive then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I love that record. I think it's a great record. That's he, like a big band type record. Yeah. yeah. It, but he 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 had started to look back on his earlier work with disdain, oh. and thought that where he was right then was the only place for him and he never should have done this other stuff and he he uh, he would say things like well now that we're done with the noisy rock and roll we'll play some real music for you <laughs> but that fish face of his and the <laughs> rv british accents like all right buddy you know i i saw the reunion of the original joe jackson man in austin on at um auditorium shores during south by southwest ah yes uh years um I don't, were you there were you at that show too no, no. <laughs> and uh, I was shocked at how tall Joe Jackson was because when you look at pictures of him, you just picture this short little troll <laughs> guy, but right. it, he actually looked like he's like six five or something. I was my my image of him was a short little guy, and I was really surprised at how big he was. He he is. I think he is my height exactly. And that's what six. 
Six four. Six yeah. four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I saw him on stage, I was really shocked because I always pictured him as this little guy, you know, like right. Gollum or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. <laughs> so, uh, so, your tour experience with Joe Jackson wasn't good. It wasn't good with Alice Cooper. <laughs> oh no 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 no! no? That, that's no. Uh, the the tour with with uh, with Joe Jackson was great. Oh, I mean, it, just that he was a jerk. Okay. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's just a jerk. Uh, the uh, the Alice Cooper shows, that that was a bad match. Yeah. That, we probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, but it, it, even that was okay. I'd never played in a hockey rink before. I mean, it was, it was, it was good to play. Was he in front still of... drawing a pretty good crowd in that era? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. He, we played great big places with him. The the Holland Oats tour was really good. That I learned a lot about music from that specific tour. Those guys were they were fantastic, and they gave us they they were very open and kind with us. Also with Greg Kinn, that that was another really good match for us. Yeah, that's a good match. Yeah, Daryl Hall and John Oates sound like really nice guys. Like when I've heard them on Howard Stern and stuff, they sound really cool. They they were very very nice, and the band with the, all the guys in the band were. Very, very nice. And well, the thing that I that I took away from from that from that uh, experience of getting to see him play, you know, a dozen times or so, was that those guys brought it every single solitary night. Nobody phoned anything in. They they did all those vocal histrionics, whether you like them or not. They did them every single time, and those those harmonies were spot on, and the arrangements were great. And they, those guys were professional musicians. It just was a bit of an odd lineup because he was doing a, a jump and jive big band tour. Oh, right. His road crew didn't really want to give us, you know, as often happens with opening acts, much sound check and much even just kind of friendliness, you know. So it was just a bit awkward. But the bass player, I remember, was super cool. <laughs> uh-huh. He's the only one we really got to know. He was just a very good guy. Uh, but no, we had we still had some great shows. Uh, someone brought up recently uh, that they saw us in Boston, uh, opening for him. Yeah, you know, so it's weird how that'll trigger. Like I remember that show, and I think I, in a spirit of rock and roll, knocked over one of the mic stands at the end, which was their mics. Which I don't blame them. And the guy came up really pissed off, and <laughs> I realized, oh, this is this was not a good thing to do. So, but you were just caught little up in the moment, like right? Right up in the moment, trying to <laughs> get our thing out there, and and, <laughs> and I think we were going over with the crowd really well. But then Joe, I think, would come out and say, "Don't you hate modern music?" And that was like his opening line, <laughs> and we were kind of like, oh, "All right." <laughs>
I guess you got dropped by portrait. I have two different the two different versions of Sex Trap. The one that has Jack's got a problem on it. I guess that's the second one. It is, yeah. Yeah. How did that work? You ended you ended up re-releasing it with an extra song. Once the CBS actually it was kind of a combination of maybe we could have stayed with them, but it didn't work out. But we kind of had enough of a fan base that we thought, well, we'll we'll just make our own record. We'll pay for it. We'll put it out. So the first version um, of Sex Trap was on our own label called Mainway Records, which we got from the skit with Saturday Night Live with Dan Aykroyd. Had this corrupt business called Mainway that would put out things like uh, a sack full of glass or something. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so we kind of had our own bizarre, like, let's call our label that, put it out, and then... um, um, God, what is their name? The lab- the second one is on... Is it Enigma? Uh, Enigma. Yeah, so then those guys found out they liked 2020 and they heard the record and they went, well, we, we would like to put this out with their distribution, but we want another song or and they remixed, I think, Fast Car. So, um, and we had a different manager then. So we, we worked out that deal and put out that version put out a video of Jack's got a problem. That's how that happened. So, so after, after the sex trap, how long did 2020 last after that record? That was what, like 83? Oh, oh, not long at all. Not long. Yeah. Probably measure it in months rather than years. I moved away from Los Angeles and quite a, quite a bit of time passed before Sony bought CBS and started reissuing, uh, things on, on CD, uh, transitioning from vinyl to CD, and when they did, they made a deal with a, a little label from uh, California um, that hooked up with Sony Special Music Projects and and re-released our first record as a as a, a two for one. Right, our first two records that is as a, as a two for one, and that's when we started getting some interest to you know to to record again, and and that's how we got to make the the uh, the next two records.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 